The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Lorraine Hecke is with me today. Lorraine is an MSW, ACSW, LCSW, and PhD, and is employed by California State University San Bernardino, where she coordinates and teaches the Master's Graduate Counseling and Pupil Personnel Services credential programs. She also is the founder of the Fabula Center, a counseling and training Center located in Southern California. Lorraine teaches about death, dying, and bereavement throughout the U.S. and internationally. Her unique ideas and practices are drawn from narrative therapy and represent a departure from the conventional models of grief psychology. Her articles have appeared in numerous professional journals and magazines. She, along with John Winslade, co-authored Remembering Lives, Conversations with the Dying and the Bereaved. Her children's book, My Grandmother is Always With Me, is written with her daughter, Addie. Her text, Breathing Life into the Stories of the Dead, Constructing Bereavement Support Groups, is available from Taos Publishing. Welcome, Lorraine. Thanks, Cheryl. First, I just want to say how wonderful it is to read a book that resonates so deeply with my own life as a griever, um, to, to put my experiences in some, in some context, uh, philosophical context that just made so much sense to me. So thank you for that very much. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad that, that you found places that have been personally um, resonant for you. That's important. Yes, and and particularly, I, I guess I'll say the idea of of cutting my wife out of my life, or somehow that the relationship was over, just was completely antithetical to every fiber of my being. Sure. And I and I know that part of your um, viewpoint is about not doing that. And I wondered if you could just describe for listeners briefly your uh, what remembering lives means. Sure. Yeah, because um, uh, I think you, you have um, uh, alluded to it um, quite accurately when we're talking about not cutting people out of our lives. Um, so the assumptions that I work with is that when a person dies, they continue to matter to us just because they are physically not a part of our lives in the same way that they once were. Their influence in our lives, their love in our lives, their stories in our lives continues to have a place to be interwoven to um, the actions that we take, the way in which we respond to life, um, uh, and sometimes the purposes and um, directions that we may take. So we continue uh, upholding that relationship 
and finding a place for that relationship to inspire us, to feed us, to nurture us um, as we carry those memories with us for the rest of our lives. So it stands in, remembering stands in opposition to a lot of what kind of the dominant grief model has been, which has encouraged people to let go of the relationship, to find closure, to move on from the relationship. Um, That, as you were saying, doesn't bode well for most people, and I would suggest that it it may actually even produce more pain when we take that path. Um, Instead, um, when we're practicing with remembering that we are actually looking at how do we keep somebody's stories accessible to us, how do we keep their presence, their love available to us um, to act as as a soothing um, balm, if you will, in the face of grief. You know, this this caused me to think a lot about uh, which I, which I had when uh, most particularly when my when my wife died and my thinking about this formed uh, in mm-hmm. 1995 to think about um, what I considered myself to be saying goodbye to at that moment right. because there was uh, there were things I was saying goodbye to. Uh, sure. I was I was saying goodbye to having uh, a co-parent who could uh, who I could hand the kid over to, <laughs> you know. I was, I was saying goodbye to uh, to having someone in my bed, you know. All these things, all these physical manifestations of the relationship. There was a goodbye there, Correct. but yeah. uh, I I certainly didn't feel that I was saying goodbye to her. And I wonder how you weave that together with people um, to to acknowledge what is lost, yet focus on what is still present. Yeah, and the trick is, is you're correct um, in thinking that we're not able to hold on to the, the entirety of the relationship. Death creates that kind of pause where we have to say, um, what parts of the relationship are now going to be different? What parts of the relationship can I hold on to? What parts might I actually want to not hold on to? Um, and what parts of the physicality um, force a change in how we relate to that person. So like with your wife, that um, she didn't get to continue to, to co-parent in a physical way, but her stories got to continue to be perhaps interwoven in, in how you co-parent and how the kids then respond to her presence in their lives. Um, so, we're, so rather than looking at exclusively the stories of what was lost, I might be asking people to select out what also then continues to remain. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the places that kind of shifts that idea upside down of um, how bereavement has been thought of, to look at instead of exclusively the stories of sadness, exclusively the stories of what what is not here, but to also focus on what continues to be influential, what continues to be viable, what continues to be... Um, uh, something that, that you would want to invest in for yourself, um, for your kids, um, so, so that um, uh, your wife's memory continues to be um, a critical nurturing aspect of everyone's lives. So a lot of times it's, it's picking those pieces apart of saying, you know, well, um, what parts are going to stay, what parts aren't going to stay, what parts do you want to actually maybe edit um, out, what parts would you like of that relationship to perhaps even be more distant? Um, for somebody um, uh, who might have had a more challenging relationship. So it's about um, sorting the uh, wheat from the shaft, if you will, um, mm. uh, and, and death produces that time 
um, where time is temporarily suspended, right? Where we have that pause where we can say, okay, let's take stock of what this relationship has meant to me. Let's take stock of what this relationship will continue to mean to me from now until eternity. One thing that I've been thinking of as I've been reading your book and, and everything that, I, that I've um, read to prepare for this talk is the ways in which that there have been points where I again had to uh, re-edit. For instance, when I met someone new. Uh, or actually before I met the person, when I began to consider, um, you know, I was pretty young when she died. So uh, when I began to consider repartnering, uh, we really had to change our relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then as that relationship got more and more um, exclusive or powerful or whatever you want to say, we had to renegotiate again. Uh sure. And then I would say, when I started this show, we again renegotiated. She came in, yeah. back in yeah. much more <laughs> intensely yeah, yeah, yeah. at yeah. that point. So is it, have you had the experience of um, people coming back over time to kind of um, reform their conception of people in their mm. lives? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. What I'm really loving about what you're talking about, Cheryl, is that um, – uh, the life of a person who has died continues to be a living, pulsating um, experience that needs to be um, reshaped again and again, right? Just like if we're in relationship with, with a living partner, that we are constantly renegotiating that with them, right? As to how Absolutely. our partnerships, you know, are with our children as our children grow, um, that we're constantly renegotiating how we're going to parent and how they're going to be a child with us. Um, and when somebody dies, that process doesn't stop. You know, that the relationship does not get frozen in time at the, the moment they take their last breath, but that the relationship continues to have those touch points of vitality where we get to step back into it and say, is this where we want this relationship to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just that we're doing it with somebody who's no longer alive. So um, the example sometimes I'll use is when I, I speak about my mother, she died when I was young, um, and um, at that point, we had um, a certain kind of relationship that um, it became part of um, how I folded her into my life. But um, in part, maybe because I was a little bit younger, that there were a lot of places that she was more distant to me for a long time. When mm. I got a little bit older, and, and when I became a mother myself, I needed to refresh that relationship with her. I had mm-hmm. this um, strong sense to, to say, you know, who is my mother to me? What kind of mother were you to me? And how does that then impact on what kind of mother I would like to be to my daughter? Um, yes. And so I had that opportunity to revisit the, the relationship because the relationship um, is always there waiting for us to step back into and refresh and remember the aspects that are important. And so at that point, my relationship with my mother morphed into something different. Right. Um, yes. And then many, many years later, um, I've found opportunities again and again with my mom for that to happen. There was actually recently um, this last year, my stepfather um, uh, died, and when my, his daughter, my stepsister, was cleaning out the attic, she found all these old pictures and letters of my mother that that I didn't know existed. I don't even know mm. if anybody remembered it. And so, mm. almost um, 35 years after my mother's death. 
my stepsister gives me um, three boxes of photographs and um, school reports of my mother's and letters she had written, love letters between my mother and my father, much to my father's embarrassment, um, and beautiful pieces that let me, again, refresh that connection to her to say, you know, who do I want you to be even now that you've been dead twice as long in my life as you ever were alive, right? But that relationship is always vital and pulsating and able for us to re-edit that. That's very beautiful, and and it makes me think of the um, the children's book uh, that you re- wrote. My grandmother is mm. always with me, um, mm. because I of course didn't begin reading it knowing where it was going, mm-hmm. and then to to discover that your daughter was talking about a grandmother she didn't meet. I found that so right. so touching because my grandchildren, one and a half and three and a half, um, right. my daughter, their mother was very close to my mother, who died right. in September. And, right. you know, how she keeps that relationship alive for them, being so little, uh, yeah. it gave me great heart to imagine that and how that might, might happen. How nice, yeah. Yeah, so if we are working from the vantage point and, and hold the assumption that, that um, uh, death does not end the relationship, right? That we mm. can continue to... Um, tap into the relationship, continue to tap into the stories and the lessons and, and the meanings of the life um, for as long as we want. You know, we could even resurrect those stories after they've been dormant for a long time. I find that incredibly comforting to think about. Um, to know that, that, that um, people that matter to me can um, still have a voice in my life, um, even long after they're here. I also find it um, refreshing for me to think about um, for down the road when I'm not here, right? How am yes. I going to continue to matter to people who love me? Um, yes. And um, not in, a, in an oppressive type um, haunting way, but in a way that can, can uplift and inspire and give meaning and value. Um, mm. You know, and uh, um, so uh, having those little places where you can just tap into the relationship and say, you know, what is it that you want to hold precious? What is it you want to honor or remember? Um, in this connection, this would be a great time for you to read the um, the section from uh, remembering lives because uh, it gives a sense of how we do this as we go forward. Would you share that? Sure. Yeah, sure. This is um, a paragraph out of the book Remembering Lives that I wrote with John Winslade, and it talks a little bit about um, kind of the, some of the, the background thinking. Uh, so, remembering conversations are deliberate acts of membership construction. They keep a person's membered status close and current and constantly renew our loved one's presence in our club of life. To remember is to include them in our daily lives, in our conversations, in our celebrations, in our decision-making, and in our resources for living. To remember is to refuse to allow our loved one's memory to go by unnoticed. Remembering may involve keeping a person's voice alive through repeating their words in relation to new development in life. It may involve consulting the deceased's opinion as a resource for dealing with a new challenge. It may involve keeping a place in family gatherings or rituals for someone who is no longer alive. It may involve telling young children stories about a dead grandparent's life. It may involve committing oneself to 
to living for some value or purpose that is a dead loved one, that a dead loved one held dear. Of course, that last line impacts me a great deal because that's the whole idea of my show, really. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, comes oh, direct, really nice. directly <laughs> out of out of that relationship and what we constructed together when yeah. she was alive. Uh, it's a very yeah. direct outgrowth. The other line that really spoke to me was deliberate acts of membership construction because uh, for me, and I think this is true of many, many people, when I could take action, when there was something for me to participate in in grief, when I wasn't kind of a helpless uh, <laughs> recipient right. of, of terrible feelings, yeah. but I was an actor in it, and that was so soothing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, I agree that um, the places where we ha- I think we get some rub um, is that um, grief has, for the last hundred years has been thought of as something that people have to passively suffer through and that they have to suffer through um, in silence, right? So um, people stop talking about the, the dead loved one um, quite quickly. They... Um, uh, our friends and family think that if they bring up that person's name or tell a story that, that they'll be creating harm for the, for the bereaved person. Um, when in fact, um, it, the more we tell the stories, the more we tell the places where um, we're inspired by the person who has died, the more soothing um, we often find because we're building those points of connection between the living and the dead. I think of them as like these bridges that we're always building Mm. um, where we're actively constructing. These are the thousand pathways I have to find you again, right? Because I I knew how to find you when you were alive on most days, um, but now that you're dead, I'm not sure how to find you anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And so let's, um, you know, keep their, their name on our lips. Let's tell the stories. Let's celebrate what they've brought to us. Um, as a way as folding them into our lived stories, right? It almost it, mm. many let's let's for, pick that up. I'm sorry. Let's pick that yeah, up ahead, after Cheryl, the break because uh, it's about time for a break. I want to talk that about that that sense of building bridges and keeping people alive. Let's go back to that as soon as we're uh, done with the break. And listeners, I enjoy hearing from you with your own stories of loss and transformation. Share your experiences. Suggest ideas for the show. Thank you to everyone who's been in touch already. And to find Lorraine Heckey, go to Remembering Practice. Practices.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Lorraine Hecke, who's worked to help people reconfigure their relationships with those who've died instead of attempting to say goodbye or end the relationship is the subject of our show today. And we were, just before the break, talking about building bridges and um, and and maintaining... Um, the membership of the people who've died in the, the community, in our internal community. It, would that be a way to put it? Yeah, uh, that would be a nice way to put it, actually, to, <laughs> to, to talk about, how, you know, how is it that, that we continue to keep the, their um, uh, stories viable for us, right, as part of our, our own community of, of internal resources to help us create action. Yeah, and there and there are sometimes, as I was saying on the break, uh, for instance, a, a person I'm working with who lost her mother very young and was not really allowed to continue to interact um, mm-hmm. with her mother in any viable way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's so much missing for her. Um, mm. How do you recapture that when it when it is more a vague, empty place inside of a person? Um, I know she's old enough to remember, but uh, but they're kind of the memories are not accessible to her. Sure, um, and uh, this is not unusual, right? Where um, people have that experience of um, having somebody die a long time ago, um, or perhaps like um, the woman you're speaking about when when they were young, um, where the memories get um, pushed far, far, far away, uh, uh, and. Um, uh, when I have spoken with people in that situation, sometimes what we're doing is, is we're um, constructing those bridges um, initially quite slowly where we're saying, you know, what, perhaps what is one thing that you have that, that you hold on to of her? You know, perhaps one memory or one item that you have um, that connects you to her as a starting point. Um, and then I'm going to develop um, with them a story around what that one item perhaps means or that one memory mm. If I'm lucky, um, I might ask them about who else has held the memories of that deceased person um, that we can uh, perhaps have the interviews with. Um, I'm thinking about um, a young woman who I write about in the um, uh, book on bereavement support groups. And she talked about a very similar situation where her father um, died unexpectedly and violently when she was about um, nine years old. Um, and same thing, had had no memory of him. Um, and when she first came into um, the support group, she was 25. And mm. she came in with a story and she said, I have um, nine pictures of him 
and that is all I know, right? And so we started with those nine pictures that she had hidden for all those years um, because she felt that she wasn't allowed to speak about him and slowly reconstructed a relationship with him. She had um, the um, good luck to ha- uh, was able to find his brother and his living sister um, in a neighboring city and go and speak with them. And they welcomed her into their family and said, we have waited for this day, right? Um, mm-hmm. And shared pictures and stories, and um, and by the end of the six week support group, she was talking about how that she had transformed this relationship, and and this bridge became beautifully, elaborately constructed to where she now saw that there was all these places where he had walked with her, where his mm-hmm. intentions were with her, her, his love was with her, um, and so she had this sense of him never having left her. Mm-hmm. How beautiful. There's really no point where we can't go back and reconstruct that, right? Um, Even with starting with the smallest sliver of a relationship, that the relationships um, with the deceased are there waiting for us as soon as as we start building that bridge to them. Well, the other thing that really stood out for me in reading your work is the sense that we are not individuals. And, of Mm -hmm. course... We are so trained to think of ourselves as 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 individuals, as ones, right. as opposed to um, being an interweaving of whoever is in our life. Even if there's no one in your life personally, we live in a culture, we live in a neighborhood, we live, you know, um, right. there's there's no solitary person, and that right. seemed very connected to what you're talking about. Yeah, isn't it? and again, I find that a very comforting thought. Um, you know, the, the combat against this, this kind of um, obsessive feeling of, um, you know, isolation or, you know, individual um, experiences in life where people get produced into feeling lonely and not belonging. Um, and when I think in terms of community and I think about all the people who travel with me, living, dead, people I haven't met, some people talk to me about um, religious icons that, that are a part of who informs their lives. Mm. Um, and um, so that, that there's that sense of community that, that travels with us. Um, and there's a, that sense, in my, the way I see it, is that, that we're born into this community, right? Um, and that community holds our stories for us, um, helps us develop those identities um, that we might prefer, um, and long after we're dead, those places um, are continued to be held in that community, right? So my death doesn't stop those places from existing. Um, and so I find that to be a, a much more refreshing way to think about life, to think about, you know, that those stories um, are there, they're waiting, they're accessible, just like with the woman who I was talking about whose father died young, um, as these places that exist within a community, that, that we exist within a community. Mm. And that's sometimes also problematic for people if their community consists of people who don't have an understanding of, of what we're talking about, of keeping people alive. Then there can be such a sense of alienation from the other members of your community um, yeah. and um, that's, that's double-wrenching in a way. Um, yeah, 
and it gets into a really tricky space too when you're talking about um, talking with somebody who really wants to bring to life the stories of the dead, and other people are like, "Oh no, 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 I don't want to talk about that." You know, that's yeah. too much. You know, um, absolutely. And, you know, so we have to kind of gently broach that space with them and and um, build very soft bridges um, and um, saying, you know, it's here for you when you want. Um, and in the meantime, I'll be the holder of those stories, and that's fine, right? Um, the, and the other por- part that's important to me in there is the effect of what happens when, those, when we live in those communities where those stories live, is that the voices continue to be accessible to guide choices for us, right? Mm-hmm. So particularly like when I'm talking with somebody who's newly bereaved, um, and the pain is, you know, heart-wrenching. You know, um, that I'm talking with, with um, parents who ch- whose child was murdered, for example, um, and that the pain is so desperately um, painful, and that sense of yearning is so desperate and so understandably profound um, that, that I have a sense that it is um, almost um, an ethical responsibility of mine um, to help those parents reconnect with the voice of their child, right? Um, to reconnect with the stories of the child, to reconnect with the love that the child holds for them um, and that will continue to be with them for the rest of their lives, right? Mm. Um, yes. And that, that those stories and that love and that voice live in that sense of, of community or live in that member, membership club, if you will. Well, you know, I was I was going to have you read the section from your bereavement support group um, uh-huh. um, writing because it it occurs to me that that's a way that because that has become more um, sort of expected or at least or accepted that people might join a support group, and mm-hmm. there's a way in which that. Uh, the people in a support group. I do cancer support groups, but it's a mm-hmm. similar thing. They hold each other's stories. Right. Uh, in a way that see, if you can't kind of bring your uh, lo- your loved one along to your uh, broader community, maybe you can there. Do you find right. that happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I have noticed that as well in a support group where um, people in the group will say, you know, you're going to help hold those stories, and then they become the audience, right? Yes. Um, as well, and and to say... You know, um, let me. Okay, I'll do a really quick diversion before I re- read you the story about one woman who was telling me she came to the support group because her her um, uh, partner had died, um, but she was in the support group with another woman whose um, father had died. And the woman at the very last support group whose partner died turned to the woman whose dad had died and said, "Look." I had a really horrible relationship with my father. He abused me. He beat me. Um, he molested me. And I cut him out of my life um, long ago. And being here in this support group and hearing how much love you have for your father has given me a new understanding of what a father could be. Hmm. And then, then this woman says, she says, would it be okay with you if the next time I need a loving father, if I actually call on your dad's voice to guide me? Hmm. So look at how profound that is. And, so uh, profound. Not, not, yeah, not only for the woman whose dad dies, but for the woman who had no idea that she was going to reconfigure a relationship with a new father that she was just getting to meet in a posthumous form. And that, and that he could be so vibrant 
Uh, I feel that way about my father-in-law. He died two months before my my wife did, so of course I never met him. But he's Uh very, very, very alive for me. Yeah, uh, I yeah. would swear that that we, you know, attended events together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, exactly. he's so alive yeah. for me because he has yeah. been kept alive by his family. Yeah, and though that way of living is much more the norm than what conventional psychology has tried to, to teach us, mm-hmm. where you know that we're supposed to cut a person's stories out from our lives, um, find closure, find acceptance, move on, and if not, we're in denial. That's been the dominant model for 100 years. But what you're speaking of about your father-in-law um, or the way in which your wife's um, presence keeps shows, showing up for you in the radio show, that's much more the norm than the other. I, I agree with that. It's just yeah. a well-kept secret sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's, let's have a revolution and, and unkeep that secret, you know, and make it really Absolutely. public. <laughs> yeah, so the, um, let me share this one piece, um, yeah. if I could, Cheryl, um, from the Bereavement Support Group, because I think um, that speaks to what we're talking about. Um, while it seems crazy to suggest a relationship with a dead person, establishing just that brings relief to those who do. Reestablishing a relationship of sorts provides a vehicle for those living with what can be debilitating pain to achieve their desired reconnection to those who have died. It may even appear presumptuous to speak about needing to reconstruct a relationship benefited already by long-standing bonds. After all, the bereaved obviously had such a connection with the deceased. But what is involved here is to create a model to facilitate this continuing relationship. When a person dies, the old script of how to connect with that person is suddenly erased and previously familiar ways to interact fail. The new vacuum gives way to yearning and to grief. The bereaved suffer in part from not knowing how to locate the dead person in their lives. The bereaved crave that reconnection but our usual grief theories and practices have sternly rejected any possible renegotiation of relational space. I'm aware that that stands against most spiritual traditions, where most spiritual traditions, there is some way in which uh, people who die continue and yet, and yet, mm. we don't uh, necessarily always access that in in our relationships to people who've died. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The um, the interesting thought, isn't it, that um, it, that we have um, narratives in religious doctrine that have a place for people to continue, but oftentimes those places still separate them from the living, right? So, um, so I'm always curious about that in terms of asking people, you know, so, um, you know, is your loved one in a place where you can continue to have connection with them, you know? Like if somebody believes in um, a Christian heaven, I would want to know about what that looks like for them and whether or not, you know, we could send uh, messages back and forth from heaven or whether or not heaven was a resting place um, where there's no communication with the living um, so I think those things, those stories need to, to, to be um, uh, kind of uh, plumbed for um, possible bridges um, between the living and the dead. Um, and they may or may not actually be there um, for people. Um, but you're right, uh, the, those spiritual narratives um, 
uh, could act as a guidepost for some people. For some people, they might not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a place to be tremendously curious about. Um, and, you know, what I come back to talking about is I think stories um, transcend um, all of it. Love transcends all of it, you know. Um, yes. And so, you know, where, do, where can I find those stories? Where can I find the love? Um, and spirituality may be a part of that for some people. I'm I'm kind of laughing to myself because of a, an experience I had the week before my mother died, or a couple days actually before she died, which was last September, almost a year now. And um, she, it was she was a very faithful person. I would call myself more spiritual, and she was more religious than me. Mm-hmm. Um, but but a deep spiritual sense in her religiosity, if you will. And I know, I knew she believed in heaven and all that. So I asked her, uh, do you think you're going to see dad? My father died several years ago. And she embarrassedly said, maybe so, you know. uh, (laughs) And as if somehow I would object to her belief, you know. And I said, well, that'll be nice, you know, or something. Um, (laughs) There are so many ways in which we... We have trouble bridging across belief systems where mm. if we're really interested in understanding how we each see it, that's, that's a natural bridge. Right. Uh, and, fi- and finding those connecting points, right? Connecting you know? points. Exactly. Yeah, so it's like, like you know, would you, um, if I were sitting with your mom in that, in that conversation, you know, might I be asking you, um, um, Cheryl, would you like your mom to take a message to your dad just in case, you know, they get to hang out together? Just in case she's right. <laughs> you know, just in case she's right. Yeah. And just in yeah. case, you know, that maybe she might like to take a message for, um, you yeah. know, to him from you, you know? Yeah. 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 Being that I'm the identified grief person in my family, people don't always want to have those conversations with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, but, I, have, yes. I have had that experience. I understand. <laughs> but but mm-hmm. we did more than I would have anticipated, really step mm-hmm. across that line, listen to my show together, and you know, have some real meaningful conversations in that illness time, for Lovely. sure. Yeah. Those bridges that we're talking about um, get built in those moments, right? That those um, uh, conversations, um, if we're fortunate enough to have them before a person dies, lays the pillar for where those bridges can then um, be built upon. Absolutely, and I'd like to, uh, I'd like to come back and talk about an idea that uh, you talked about a little bit. That's very present for me. You know how relationships can sometimes improve. Uh, sure after death um during the break listeners you can find me at www.weatheringgrief.com there's links there to everything social media email um part of other work that i do and you can find lorraine hickey at rememberingpractices.com be back soon Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
we're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Lorraine Hetke about her writing and work to encourage the continuing sometimes changed and reconfigured or maybe always changed and reconfigured relationships with those in our lives who've died. We were talking about um, uh, those conversations you might have when you when you get to have conversations because, of course, for instance, with my dad, he died suddenly. So um, uh, it was us having the conversations without his engagement in it. Mm-hmm. Uh but still so powerful that that time of, uh, you know, I, I almost, uh, I usually use the word doorway for those moments. Mm. It's, it's a different time in life than other times, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, like with your dad, that you would know him better than most people, if not all people, right? And so that you would be able to um, speak his preferences speak his stories, um, speak his intentions, right, where you mm-hmm. become, um, and we all do this with grief, is that we become the, the ventriloquist for the, the person who has died. So they obviously can't actually speak to us anymore in the same way as when they were alive, um, but they still can speak through us where their, their um, stories and their voice continues to be accessible. And in that way that we can ask those questions about, you know, how do you want them um, close with you? Or, um, you know, how is it that you might want to shift this relationship? Uh, when I when I was, this is a slight uh, diversion from where we are. But when when I first read about you, um, I think there was a bio I read that said um, you had a lot of early loss, and and this just seemed a natural direction for for your life to go mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to work with this. And I wondered if you had had. Um, I didn't have death loss young, but I had a lot of loss. We moved, and there was a severing between each place we left. Uh, right. We never saw the people again. You know, it was it was, uh, and I think that really impacted what I, the 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 things I've thought about as an adult person. 
very much. And I wondered, um, did you have more severing experiences early in your life that then um, you were able to build bridges to yourself? Um, I don't... It's a great question. I don't know um, if I would use that terminology in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly had the same kind of experiences that you're talking about, you know, with, with a lot of upheaval and, and such. Um, uh, but that... I think that the way I would describe things more is that existential quest that um, most people share to say, um, I want to have a sense of where do I stand in the world, right? Mm. Who do I stand for? Who stands with me? Um, and that that um, was, um, that existential quest for me was tainted certainly by um, or flavored by, um, you know, that sense of, of um, rapid change that happened in my life or a lot of um, death when I was younger. Um, and um, so answering those questions of, you know, who do I want to stand with and, and what do I want to stand for is, has been an important theme in my life um, and and an important theme of, of what I want to do professionally. And, and I do, I have this sense, I, I said this before um, in one of the examples, is I have the sense that, that this is almost like this... Um, ethical obligation, and I feel um, that way towards people who are dead, that I feel like I am um, obligated to to create this sense where um, they get to continue to live, where their stories get to continue to live, you know. Mm. When I used to work, when I um, was a a social worker and working in hospice and and, um, in hospitals when I was younger, um, I had that sense all the time, like when I would be talking with people before they died, um, that, that... once I heard their stories or once I met them and heard about how wonderful they were, um, I had that, that sense of being obliged to honor them by, by continuing to keep their stories accessible. Um, and so that kind of theme has fit with, with who I am in life, you know, that sense of, you know, how do we care for people both living and dead? And, and connected to that, I, I guess there's, uh, you know, I... I um, have a friend and, and a, also a previous guest who is writing a book on uh, grief, love, and generosity. Her idea is that um, uh, lo- you know losing someone uh, and and cultivating who they are in our lives naturally leads to a generous impulse, uh, mm-hmm. a, a sense of wanting to give something, which. Uh, resonates for me, <laughs> yes. and yes. Um, and is that also part of what you're talking about? That um, uh, the honoring is also about giving to others what you've what you've been given in a way. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's it, it, talking about um, you know that relational respect, you know, um, that is born out of generosity. Where I say I make space for you in my life, um, uh, you know, whether you're living or not. Right, um, and it, it's about creating those places to say you matter to me, whether um, you are here physically with me or not. Um, and I think that is a generous position that is um, respectful and honoring. Um, and it, it to me, it's just the right place to live from. Well, also, I'm just aware of um, because of having been involved with some more. Um, some less Western 
ways of looking at things in my life that for some people in the world, that is just a given mm-hmm. uh, that um, you continue to um, interact with, respond to, inter- um, have relationship to those who have died, right. either uh, at, at, to think of them as ancestors or to think of them as yeah. guides or uh, at the very least, you know, de uh, los muertos or, you know, there's right. some sure. and that we've kind of, I don't know how we did it, but we lost it. Uh, we lost that sense. I think, we, I think it's actually been taken away from us. I think that the the, the dominant um, way, kind of the conventional way of thinking about um, grief psychology and the conventional way of thinking about individuals have taken those things away from us. So, so you know, Day of the Dead celebrations become, um, you know, kind of a quaint um, folk party that happens as opposed to a way of life, Right. Yes. Um, and and that the that um, power is, is uh, at separating us from our knowledges or our stories or our ancestors um, has been a, um, a formidable one to stand against, right? And remembering practices is part of that. How do we stand against those powers that say this is not just you know something cute and folksy, but this is something that that gives purpose to living. This lets me know how to sometimes put one foot in front of the other when grief has grounded me to the floor and I can't even dress myself anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's at that time when I would say we need to call on the voice of the dead one to say, you know, how would they want you to act at this moment? What do they know about you that, that would make it um, possible for you um, uh, to tend to yourself in a way that they would, would admire you know, um, so we ha- I think we have to incorporate people's voices and not disconnect them from us because it, that disconnects those resources um, in a very dramatic way and produces this kind of horrible isolation that people experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So remembering that, um, at, at the end of the day is actually a very political act as well as, as a profoundly personal act, right? Where we're saying we will we will make these people visible and accessible to us in ways that, that hold meaning for us. And that, that intersects for me, too, with... I've had a lot of guests to, on the show to talk about the end of life, uh, kind of the way we deal with end of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems to me that, um, you know, for instance, my father, whose grandmother died in his home, mm-hmm. uh, everyone was a part of that, uh, to me, it would it it would seem, and and it's true with my wife too, who died in our home, that um, it's a natural thing for a, a sense of continuance to happen, because you've gone through that entire experience together. <laughs> sure, Whereas sure. often we're, we're very separated in death in our culture, and I wonder if the two don't intersect somehow, the medical yeah, model yeah. and the sense of forgetting. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's you know for years. Um, uh, people have been, when they were dying in hospitals, um, that um, the doctors w- would not tell people they were dying, you know. Um, and so there's this big secret. Or when I worked in hospice, I cannot tell you how many times I'd show up at somebody's house and the family meets me out of the driveway and says, please don't don't talk to her, to her about dying. She, we haven't talked about it, you know. Mm. Um, and, you know, here you go into the, to this house and there's somebody in a hospital bed. They know they're dying, you know. Um, and then they'll <laughs> in say hospice me, yet. <laughs> in hospice. And, and they'll say to me, please don't talk to my family about dying, you know, that, that um, I don't want to upset them. 
And what I'm talking about is not necessarily um, only talking about dying, but I'm talking about um, the vitality of life, right? Yes. You know, where is it that even in the face of death and, and at the moment of death, where is that sense of life and where is that sense of love? So like when your wife was home with you um, and dying, I would suspect that there were beautiful love stories that were happening at that moment simultaneous to something very sad. You know? Oh, um, it wasn't sad at all at that moment. Mm, I have mm. to say I was not sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so those are... are just the, very, the, very uh, busy. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sadness yeah. took a long time to visit my doorstep, actually. Mm. Died. Mm-hmm. Which I don't talk about a lot, <laughs> but... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think I think we have some misapprehensions about what that can be like when, you know, we'd been dealing with death for eight or ten years. Right. So uh, you can't prepare, but you, you, you can prepare, you can't be prepared, I guess. Right. <laughs> you know, right. all yeah. that we yeah. had done was yeah. present. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, present and also present, but present for the love story, right? Um, yes. which is different from being present for the tragic story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the places where um, remembering becomes that active conjuring of something that is quite resourceful for people. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever felt stronger than that, to be honest, ah. uh, which, is, which is an interesting thing to remember yeah. uh, as well. So there's there's all kinds of stories that that uh, linger when you kind of do the thing head on, I guess. Right. Yeah. And or, and, and when you pause and say, "What all was in that moment?" Right. Yes. You know, and um, what pieces of that moment do you want to hold and, and invest in? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, no, what like, does what, it mean to you? To yeah. What does it mean to you? And and how yeah. would you like to um, continue to fold that moment of strength into your life, and what what would your wife want you to do with that? You know? Yes. Um, yeah. Before we have to take our leave, I'd really like you to introduce everybody to Sebastian and, sure. and read yeah. about him. He so touched me because I'm from a musical family. And, oh, nice. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> he yeah. just uh, yeah. really touched my heart. Yeah, and I suspect that that is also why why his life resonated um, his stories w- with me as well. Um, and so this is one of the opening um, stories in the Remembering Lives book, and it, it's uh, about a, a fellow who I worked with in hospice maybe 20 years ago now. Um, and um, the story goes as this. Uh, when I met with Sebastian for the first time, we had the opportunity to plant seeds with his family about his hopes for their remembering of him. He had delightful ideas about how he envisaged this, his life continuing to be important to them following his death. With his wife, two children, his grandson, and his two-month-old great-granddaughter, we spoke about his life. From his hospital bed, Sebastian shared how music had been so important to him and his family. He had been a music teacher and a composer, and each of his children also had a musical proclivity. They mentioned almost in passing that he was hoping to write music for the Heavenly Choir. I asked him about this. I said, was being in the choir an advocation that he would enjoy? Yes, Sebastian said, but I do not want to just be in the choir. I want to be in charge of it. 
His family laughed and explained that Sebastian preferred to run the show rather than to be a follower. They told me, he has written such wonderful music for so long that his friends know what a good musician he is. Many people are asking him to save a seat for them in the heavenly choir, his wife explained. His children spoke about how their father's musical abilities had inspired them. Sebastian seemed to be enjoying this conversation, was laughing and smiling with them as they remembered various concerts and how family outings were accompanied by music. I asked, what kind of music would you like to bring to the heavenly choir? Sebastian explained, well, hopefully the kind of music that makes you want to be there. I asked him again, do you think that the kind of music that you will create would be the kind of music people might flock to? Yes, I hope so, he said. I would want people to use it to find their way to heaven. I'm going to have to interrupt you. We've run out of time. I'm so Uh, sorry. But it's a beautiful story. Yeah. And people can go to the book to read it. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.